someone came in and set up a fake account for the vendor, right? And the client ended up um, wiring $100 million to fake accounts that end up being in Cyprus and then were rerouted to Ukraine. You're listening to Pardon the Disruption with your host, Tom Young. Hey, uh, hey, welcome to the show. This is Tom Young. I'm sitting here with my good friend, Rob Finkel from Wilmer Hale. Rob, welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been, um, we've known each other for a while, so it's great to see it's you. It's a little over 20 years. I checked the calendar. We, it's a good thing we look exactly the same as we did 20 <laughs> years ago. I wish. I wish I did anyway. Hey, so we're here in your uh, New York City offices here in World Trade Center. You're in Building 7 here up on the 45th floor. And uh, we just had a nice conversation over the last couple hours about trends in the industry and things that are happening. Because, you know, you and I have both been doing this for quite a long time. And we've seen a lot of cycles in the industry play out. Uh, But first, let's talk about your your building here because you guys have quite beautiful office space. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. This is we're in Seven World Trade Center, which is uh, you know one of the original World Trade Center sites. It was the site of of the New York City Emergency Management you know group, um, and this was the building that came down um, not because it was hit by the by uh, one of the planes, but it came down because there was a big oil um, uh, tanker beneath it that caught on fire. And a lot of the pictures that you saw from uh, uh, from 9-11 of Rudy Giuliani and his team walking away from the World Trade Center were from this building. He was in this building. Yeah. And what's so amazing is that this is such, such, such a, a wonderful building that's built on, on, the, on the old site. It was the first of the buildings that, that, that were built down here that, was, uh, that, were, that were occupied. Um, Larry Silverstein, who has leased for the, uh, for the site, um, is one of the tenants here as well. In fact, you see him coming to the building from time to time. So we've been down here for for about seven years uh, or so. It's a great building with, as you said, amazing light. You know, really nice office space, really modern. Yeah. Um, and a really kind of a, ter- a terrific place to to work as well. I remember I visited you here shortly after it opened, and you t- you told me that you were uh, because of the views. You have floor to ceiling uh, windows, and you have views north, south, east, and west. As you have the whole floor here. It's beautiful. You have some beautiful space. A lot of uh, production companies have come here to film TV shows and movies. Yeah. Well, I, I know about all of them because um, because I, nego- I negotiate our contracts for them. So, in, in fact, my second career, I think, is going to be negotiating movie contracts. So, uh, we've had in here um, uh, some movies uh, uh, that, uh, that you probably have, have heard of. We had The Other Woman that was filmed here. That was with Cameron Diaz, Kate Upton, Nicki Minaj. In fact, Nicki Minaj was sitting in the, in the our office, our reception area, which is right around the corner from here. Uh, I had a chance to meet uh, meet Cameron Diaz when she was here and we were filming because um, she needed a green room to, um, you know, during the filming. They were here for about a week during the, during the filming of that. She needed a green room. And so we had to have extra space for her in a space that we knew no one would go to. And so where's the place at a law firm that no one goes to anymore? A library. Oh, there you go. <laughs> right. Everything's moving to digital, so yeah. we set up Cameron Diaz's uh, uh, green room in her in in uh, in the library. Something. So it was kind of cool. You're um, doing a current HBO show, uh, Succession, right? Yeah, Succession's being filmed here as well. The um, offices of the lead character, right, the patriarch of the family, is yeah. here around the, around the corner from here. It's got an amazing view of of uh, into the the World Trade Center site. So that's been filmed here, and they come back every time they they film they need office space. They they come back here and film it here. 
So I remember going back when I met you, we were working on a very large AT&T deal back in the late 90s down here in lower Manhattan. And uh, that was some time ago. And, you know, we talked today a little bit about how the industry has changed quite a bit from those type of um, classic outsourcing agreements to the kinds of commercial agreements that are emerging today. So, um, again, when you started working as an attorney in this space at Millbank, is that right? Yeah, that was uh, 1997. Been practicing now for almost 30 years and about, you know, the last 20 plus uh, in this area. And 1997 was the first time I started working in deals like this. And that's when I met you, though. I remember the, the term, the name of the project was called Project Clover. If do, you, do you remember that? Uh, no, I. You know what? I actually don't. So your yeah. memory uh, is proven to be much better than mine. Yeah. So uh, those were very at the time cutting industry deals. They were very large, but we were just talking about the nature of how these deals go through. I mean, I think those agreements were. I, I measure it in not pages, but how it was like five inches thick. Yeah, at least. And it took. It had. A, we had a, an army of consultants and attorneys and clients and. It's several floors on the firm. It was it was something else. And then today we contrast, you know, the way deals get done. You were mentioning today, you even had for some deals, maybe the smaller deals, uh, you never even meet the client. It's all remote. It's through teleconference and email. Yeah. Very different, uh, you know, now, you know, say twenty years ago how it was. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, and like yeah, well, it's kinda like, you know, everything changes, right? Um, downtown, which is where we are now. Um, you know, we're on the base of, uh, or maybe the leading edge of, of, of Wall Street, right? We're right now at the World Trade Center site um, on Greenwich Street, the end of Greenwich Street. 20 years ago, nobody lived here, right? Now, this is a huge residential, you know, space. There are restaurants, there are, you know, bars, there's places to go out. They're in the process of building a really, you know, gonna, what's going to be a really interesting um, multimedia you know, um, center, the Perlman Center, which is uh, right next door as well. So the whole area is, is, is changing dramatically. And the industry, too, has changed dramatically. Like those deals that we did 20 years ago or so, where we did multi-billion dollar outsourcing deals, where a corporation like AT&T would go out to a one vendor to do everything, and we'd have contracts that would be this high and sit around for nine months negotiating them. There are some deals like that out there, but whereas 20 years ago that was the majority of the deals, today that's a small minority. Yeah, maybe one deal deal a year is is done like that. So the name of this podcast series is, is "Pardon the Disruption," and so tell me a little bit about how you see the market being disrupted. And we talked a little bit about. I'm going to lead you a little bit on this this question, um, more so than ever. Um, the creation and use and decision rights and regulatory issues around data are much more prevalent than they were, say, 20 years ago. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, it's almost all about data these days, right? Mm-hmm. And the value of data um, from both sides of, of the equation. Um, you know, clients, um, I, well, I tend to come to focus on this from a client perspective because that's who I tend to represent. Buy side. I, the buy side, yeah. Right. Those going out to, get to seek a solution. So, from two perspectives. One is nobody worried about cyber risks 20 years ago, right? No, nobody, there wasn't such a thing, right? People worked, uh, um, worried about confidentiality risks with somebody, you know, leaving their laptop someplace if they had a laptop 
or you know someone a rogue employee walking away with data and setting a competing firm that was a, that was a data risk now right that's a, all anyone worries about because every business that has either online or has planned to go online and you know that creates huge risks and every business has either been hit by a cyber attack or and they know about it or hit by a cyber attack and they don't know about it so from the client perspective, it's all about data because you want to protect what you have. Um, on the flip side of that, you want to, you know, there's great value in data. And um, both clients and vendors want to come in and figure out a way to monetize it. So those are kind of issues that we didn't deal with 20 years or so ago. So we, we at Rumjog, we talk about uh, two playbooks or perspectives around everything from operations, but let's talk about it with respect to data. We talk about defense, which is ensuring, for example, using it's a defense offense playbook, but the defensive playbook on data is getting it right, getting it organized, getting it structured and safe and protected. But you mentioned the upside, which is the offensive capabilities. How do I now take the data that I have and create new offensive capabilities? And what's interesting about today's deals that we see and the engagements that we're on is it's not just the data that you bring to the table. There's a tremendous amount of data that is being created through the operation of new deals, you know, the telemetry that sits uh, and capturing that digital exhaust, but then the ability to take that and combine it with other data to create new recombinant data. And so you get into this whole issue about who owns, where does my ownership interest cease? And how do I ensure my protection rights uh, through a, a creative process that's happening all around us? We don't want to stifle innovation on the one hand, but on the other hand, I don't want to leave a lot of money on the table if I have really cool data. What you, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, you, you know, um, it's really an emerging area. And um, I, I think we're almost at the very, like we're in the first inning now yeah. of, of all this. Do you think um, that's right? I do because. All right, so let, so let's like, like, to go back to the. We've been in this for a long time. The first inning on, da on data. No, no, uh, I get that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Or so, maybe second. Yeah. But, so, but like, the last twenty years have been, uh, I'd say, you know, pretty good for people in your industry on the uh, advising clients on complex service agreements and for consulting for sure. Do you think that as a result of data being in the first inning, that the next five to ten years will be better than the last twenty? Or do you think it's going to change radically so that it's only going to be good if you get positioned in the right perspective or is it a qualified yes? I mean, this, what do you think about that? Yeah, so, so maybe I should make clear what, what I mean by we're in the first or second inning. I think we're in the first or second inning because clients are just now figuring out and coming to the realization that this they're sitting on data, troves of data that have great value. And some have really figured it out, right? And this is, this is the model for Google or Facebook, right? And, and a few other companies, right? They figured out in Amazon too, they figured out the value of it and how to monetize it. Uh, there are others too, credit card companies, right? Mm -hmm. You know, the Amexes, the MasterCards, the world, they do great at figuring out what data their clients have and how to figure out value of it. But everyone else, I think, is just now beginning to recognize that there's value in data, figuring out how to, you know, how to organize their data, and how to put it to use beyond you know the traditional uses they 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 have. 
So that's why I think I think we're in the first or second second inning. We've got you know market leaders like the Googles and the, and the and the Facebooks of the world that have figured out how to use data and get value at it, but no, but everybody else needs to catch up to them. So that's why I think we're we're in the first or second inning. Yeah, you're describing the the what I call the marquee companies in terms of data monetization because they've really created tremendous valuations for their shareholders by really driving a data centric business. Yeah, and. Uh, but I think there's a lot of firms out there who are probably sitting on things they're not aware of. And you know, we, again, we talk about with clients about going through a discovery process um, with them to say, what do you have? What could you have? What should you have around data? And then there's the so what, because we were talking before, Wilmer Hale does quite a bit of work in financial services. And financial services, like many industries, including healthcare and others, regulate the use of data, either by region or specific use case. So whether it be in healthcare, you have HIPAA, in, in Europe you have GDPR, right. Switzerland has certain rules around the use of data. Right, California is gonna have a rule that comes into play soon too. What's right? the California rule? Well, the California privacy rule, right? That's what, gonna, Tell me about that. Um, I've heard of it, I don't know what it is. Yeah, I, I think uh, actually a lot of people don't know either. So you know what, I'll tell you about it in a year when it comes into place, because people don't quite know what it will mean. What's the headline? Uh, headline is further, um, you know, restrictions around um, how you can use without uh, consent. A, a, a data without, without consent. Not quite the European model, but moving towards it. You know, these consents, I'm going to tell you, I'm not a lawyer, right? But these EULA consents and the use of like cookies that are pop up on every web page, you, you know, the consent is in form only, not in substance, because no one ever reads it. Yeah. Right. So at some level, the politicians are going to say, I don't care if they agreed or not. They didn't substantively agree. And there's going to be some kind of regulation put in place. Uh, the, the use of these complex EULA agreements, are, you know, I don't know whose interest they serve. But, you know, I think today people are and I, I use Facebook as the example, as a sort of the, the mainstream cultural issue on privacy. Your data is worth something, and we we talk about this. And we use this 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 phrase: if the product or service you're using is free, you're the product, right? And the in the monetization of your use parameters and what you're doing, your location, your buying behaviors, your viewing behaviors, or sucking time from you for your eyeballs, like how do I keep you looking at this so I can put ads in front of you? You're the product. And that's all a data-driven exercise. And I think a lot of industries are gonna go through that. Yeah. Especially, you know, financial services is one of the most sophisticated industries technology-wise. So they're probably, that's why you're, you're getting so much work here, plus you're in, in the heart of Wall Street here. Um, but what, what emerging trends do you see that you're trying to drive your clients to in terms of just their think, new thinking about their commercial agreements and then specifically some of the legal work? Yeah, so, so uh, you know, I think, Tom, you're, you're right to focus on data because um, you, what are the biggest issues we're seeing in, in, in contracts these days? Well, some are trends like AI, right, and, and, the, and, the, and the use of AI, right, by, by clients. That's clearly increasing. A lot of AI is, is in and around data, right? You know, AI is powered by data. Um, but on the, even on the traditional outsourcing deals, we spend so much more time focusing on the de defense, right? The, the risks of data getting out there 
and what that means to a client, right? You know, if like having a, a big data event is a terrible, you know, data breach is a terrible thing for the client, right? Awful publicity, it bad for their reputations, there's lawsuits galore, there's government investigations, right? There's big risks associated with that. So we spend a lot of time figuring out, okay, let's put the walls around that, right? Make certain that doesn't happen. And also risk allocation. You know, if it does happen, who's responsible, right? Is the customer or the vendor? Um, you know, vendors, you know, the, on the supply side, they like to come in and say, listen, you're just, we're not your insurer, right? This is just a risk of doing business these days. If something like this happens, and if we, if we do our best, we shouldn't be held liable for it. And on the flip side of it, though, you know, clients are coming in saying, well, why are we bringing you in here, right? You, we're bringing you in here because yeah, you yeah. Are, the, are, are the expert. So we spend a lot of time on those issues. But also increasingly, uh, in the offense, like, you know, helping understand clients, like figuring out what data they have, entering into discussions with the vendors about, you know, there could be a win-win here. Like, like, you know, if the client comes in and says, listen, you can't use our data without our approval. You can't on- anonymize it, you can't monetize it without we be having a say in that. It inevitably leads to a discussion about, well, okay, maybe we can partner together to you know, monetize this data together. We, the vendor, can go off and take it, use it in other, our other businesses, get, try to get other clients, and if we get additional revenues from that, you'll get a cut of it. So there you have opportunities for win-win solutions where um, you know, vendor can increase its you know, sales, customer can, can keep part of it, and you can protect the, 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 your client of your customer at the same time by making certain that all the data is anonymous and, and does not track to an individual. Right. So those are the discussions, the kind of interesting discussions we're, we're, we're getting into involvement in, in, in agreements these days. Yeah, another discussion we, we had is the notion of, uh, and this gets into, you're talking about the, the breach of data, gets into cybersecurity. And there is uh, this, this game that's being played with people trying to get in and, and then people trying to keep them out. Uh, but if you're trying to keep them out, it, it, you have to bat a thousand. Yeah. And it's hard to do. So one of the things we talk about with people is on the data side is and this is where you get into some of the advanced technologies is post perimeter security uh, protocols, which is doing real time analytics on the proliferation of data, so I can do anomaly detection once systems are live, and then the second thing is design your systems from an information design perspective so that you assume that the data is stolen, but you make it very hard to use without the magic keys. So we, I'll give you an example and you get a sense of this. I have a bank account, you know, and I have all my money in this digital bank account. Or even, let's just make it a physical bank account. I have a physical vault. No, I like the bank account uh, example. because So, know, so yeah. the vault, a physical yeah. vault, the bank robber comes in, steals the money. Yeah, that's where all your gold coins are, right? All you my gold, gold coins. All your bullion. Yeah. Single, single place. And so if you break into the bank vault, you steal it, you get all the money, right? But if I had, um, that's $100 in that bank account, you could steal my $100. If I had uh, 100 bank accounts with a dollar in them, 100 different vaults, my risk is very low because you know as soon as I find out two or three or four are stolen, I'm going to lock it down. Yeah. So my risk is marginal. Now the issue, reason we don't do that is because of the overhead of creating a hundred counts for a hundred dollars. That's crazy. But digitally, we can do a lot of things like that. We can start to to break up and parse out our data into fragments that are unusable individually, but only used collectively. And then the collective 
nature of is where the magic keys come in is how do I stitch it together? So I could maybe have some aspects of customer data here, some aspects there, a file that's anonymized here, but you don't know how to put it together and you wouldn't know what it means. You could also put honeypots out there, which are false data. So that pollutes the data if you steal it, but we know where the honeypots are. And so you need all the ingredients to steal this. And this is how a lot of advanced communications work in terms of protecting. And I think we need to take some of those principles and apply it to data, assuming the data is gonna get breached. This is one of the things we do on the consulting side. And then there's a, the whole legal side of it. And if I do this representation, am I offering that up? Yeah, interesting. You, you're basically trying to eliminate the human uh, risk elements of that as well. Because, you, you know, we talk about data being a technology issue. But a lot of times data and cyber risks is um, it, it, there's a human failure. Right. I mean, look at the hacking of the DNC. Oh, that's right? it. Yeah. yeah. And or or giving another example, we represented a client that had a um, finance and accounting right. um, uh, contract with one of the big vendors. They were victim of a phishing attack where uh, one of the someone came in and set up a fake account for the vendor, right? And the client ended up um, wiring a hundred million dollars to fake accounts that ended up being in Cyprus and then it were rerouted to Ukraine, right? All because they were able to come in and fake uh, mm -hmm. themselves as a, as, 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 a, as, a, as a legitimate vendor. And how'd they do that? They came in and changed one letter, right, in the root of the email address, right? And a person, right, missed, was, it. missed it, right? And it got through. So, right, I think what you're, what you're talking about is like putting in well, systems that would l eliminate some of the human elements of this. But right? think about this, you know, data in its very nature today, in this instance, is digital. And it creates a single point of failure if you store it in an old way, mm -hmm. right? In an analog world, I, I put all my, 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 you use the term library for Cameron Diaz's green room, you put all your books in the library. Yeah. Um, because that's how you do it, it's an analog form. If I digitize the library and I put all my digital assets in a virtual library of a single point of failure, I can have those books stolen instantly with one click. Right. If I put the thousand books in a thousand different places, it's like a, a, a treasure hunt. I might lose some of my books, but uh, if digitally I have the map to those thousand and it becomes invisible to me, I can just grab those thousand. It's, it, the presentation layer to the user is oh, it's still a thousand but physically they're stored all over the place in the, in the virtual world. That makes it very difficult. So I think when we create these new risks, we have to look at the new opportunities to create new business models or new structures that help mitigate those risks. It's not just about pushing the risk to the vendor or, or saying you have to give me a bigger indemnity or a bigger carve out because I can appreciate where the service providers are coming. They can't sign up for extra liability and they can't be the insurance company but at the same time, the burden is on them to say, if you're going to do business, I have a new way of doing it. Yeah, yeah. Well, the interesting thing is, is I think what you're another way of looking at what, what you said is, you have um, you've brought you've eliminated the single cause of failure, right? Uh, right. Uh, in in the example that you gave us, yes. right? Um, someone has to come in in multiple different ways to to get the same benefit that they would have had if they came in through one way. And the same thing with like a human failure, right? If you can eliminate the human failure as well, right, you eliminate that single point of failure yep. uh, as well. The challenge though, right? Do you think that with any technical solution, there's always gonna be a human element somewhere? So in your example where you can split it up in a lot of different vaults, 
is there some human that has the key to every vault and that you get access to? Eventually. Right? Yeah. So, there's, so that, 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 there's, I would say there's no magic bullet here. There's yeah. just, I would say, creative ways to do it. So let's put this back in the legal realm in, yeah. in, in, your, in your world. You do this deal and the, the client rightfully says, I want you to take uh, bigger liability, bigger indemnity, whatever it may be, uh, for the protection of the data. And the service provider comes back and says, well, I'm not your insurance company. What my, my take is, risk is being created as a result of the commerce, either real or perceived risk. And I would say where we need lawyers and consultants and even more creativity on the sell side is to address that, how we can mitigate that risk, both real and perceived. Now, how do you mitigate perceived risk is to educate people to say that risk is not real or on a relative basis, it's less. But a real risk that's created as a result of the commerce, the burden is on the seller to mitigate that risk, in my opinion. Otherwise, I'm not doing it. I have to put it into the cost of doing business. Yeah. So if I'm, you're not the insurer, then I got to go hire Lloyd's or some insurance company, and I got to put that into the cost of your service. Right. So well, real risk, seller burden. Perceived risk, it becomes an education burden to make sure that, hey, it's just, I'm just perceiving this because it's new to me. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, you know, in, in the cyber world, it's uh, sometimes hard to figure out what's real versus perceived, right? And uh, sometimes the, the perceived becomes real, <laughs> I think, uh, in almost a matrix at a uh, movie type way. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the market adapts too, right? Like cyber insurance, talk about differences in the marketplace. We didn't have cyber insurance 10 years or so ago. Yeah. Didn't, wasn't around that much five years or so ago. So, you know, part of the risk mitigation here is, is parties looking up and saying, okay, Maybe it's not right between me, uh, the buyer, and you, the seller, to allocate risk am amongst us. Let's pool the risk, right? Yeah. In, in the market, market as general, and that's what the insurance companies are doing. I was uh, I, 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 I was uh, friendly with uh, one of the CEOs of one of the large service providers in Europe, and he and I had a long relationship over multiple years. And I tried to convince them to sell risk as a service. Now. Cynical people will say risk as a service is called insurance. Yeah. But I said you should market it as risk as, an, as, uh, as a service in your service offerings to simply say, if you do it our way, we'll give you $100 million per event liability. And I said, what you're going to do if you get that is you're going to get a lot of people's attention on boards who are looking, who are very concerned about third-party contracts. Now, you mentioned before when we were talking before we started the recording in financial services, especially after the 2008 and 2009 financial crisis, the regulators are on banks and financial service companies significantly around risk mitigation on knowing your service provider. It's like how, because a lot of service, there's so many service providers at banks and financial institutions that you know, that becomes the weak link Yeah. if you don't have the controls on it. Yeah. So if, I, if I'm if i one of those service providers and I sell $100 million per uh, risk event, you're like, wow, that's that's pretty good. I'll take that. Yeah. Right? It, it's kind of interesting. Like, uh, you remember where like, we'd go to these outsourcing conferences uh, 10, 15 years yeah. or so ago, and there were all these guys from uh, regulators from the OCC and the Fed hanging around these conferences. You'd see them at, at, every, at every conference. 
And I'd be going, what, what are these guys doing here, right? And um, you know, 10 years later, you figured it out because the, um, after the financial crisis, um, a lot of the regulators looked up and banks solved a lot of the issues from, right? They, they put in regulations that addressed some of the, like, the problems we had 10 years or so ago, like excessive risk taking, not enough capital, all this stuff. Now, what they've been focusing on over the last three, three to five years is a lot of these financial institutions have, you know, 15, 20, 30,000 different vendor relationships. How do you govern all those? And any of this, uh, the, in terms of risk, right, um, you're only as good as your weakest link, right? Mm-hmm. So um, they've been under tremendous pressure to put in place vendor, vendor management, you know, uh, procedures, good vendor management. And, and have good contracts. So you know, the reason those regulators were all at our outsourcing conferences 10 or 15 years ago, they were trying to figure out what, what, we, what we did yeah. and you know, what, what, was, what was best practice. So kind of the interesting thing, if you read like the, the, like the guidance like the, that the OCC or the Fed puts out, it's like a how-to you know, outsourcing you know, guide, guidelines that we could have drafted for 10, 15 years or so ago. Yeah, I, I, th- I think the market's moving so fast, it's, it's very hard for regulators uh, to keep up. Typically, the top people in every industry get hired by the people with the money, and uh, uh, so and the and the regulators are playing catch up. Yeah, and and the bureaucracy of creating new regulation slows down the the process to keep up. I'm actually a little concerned about the regulation on AI uh, in terms of its deployment in production systems because we don't really under, we don't really fully appreciate. Uh, AI and where it's going. I think a lot of people tend to poo-poo, well, it's all going to be a net, net benefit. And I think it's going to be a tale of two cities. I think you're going to see good and bad. Technology by its nature is agnostic. And I think we're going to find situations where uh, data, data-driven decisions are made by AI that have bad social outcomes or bad uh, political outcomes, but it didn't do anything wrong. It's just the nature of the deployment. And we're going to have a negative reaction to it. So I think the sooner we have conversations about regulation, one of my friends said, uh, colleagues said, democracies uh, or you know, de- democratic republics uh, are very poor at solving future theoretical problems. They're only good at solving current crises. Yeah, I think that's right. And so I think in that sense, I'm pessimistic about our ability to get in front of this from a, a body politic. But I would say I'm very optimistic about where this is leading in terms of its overall net good for society. What are your thoughts on that? Are you are you positive, uh, optimistic about all this? That's a big question. Um, well, well, kind of one of the interesting things now is like regulatory environments like they go up and they go down, right? And um, you know, in the Obama years, uh, maybe even in the in the Bush years, right? We were probably in a more regulatory environment, right? Mm-hmm. More regulations, not less. You know, now I don't think you could say that. Now we're just in the opposite. We're in a deregulatory environment, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, you know, as long as I, th- I think the current administration's in place, I don't, I, at least at the federal level, I don't see m- much in the way of regulation coming out in this area. Maybe in privacy, right? There might be a push that uh, in, in the privacy space, but probably not in AI because, frankly, nothing's being regulated these days um, um, more. You know where we're gonna whether AI is gonna be a positive thing or a negative thing. I think we're. I think. I think this is another area where we're basically not in the not in the first inning. I think we're just coming up to bat. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
you know, what, what I fear is that some bad event will happen with some AI thing. Like there'll be an accident of an AI, you know, from an AI driven, you know, taxi and people will regulate it because of that. Not recognizing that, you know, accidents with taxis happen all the time. My, my wife got in an accident with Uber in, in Uber the other day. Thankfully, everything was fine. But something like that is going to happen, and then people are going to look at it and, and yeah. regulate it for those reasons. Almost a Luddite reaction. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, whether it's going to be good or, or bad um, in terms of, of, of things, I hope it's going to be good. Um, you know, I th- and I think kind of the interesting thing is that with AI, people have been focusing on AI taking over positions, and we see that, right? Well, frankly, we see it in, in the legal industry. Like, there are, we just um, licensed a program. A kind of a cool program that what it does is it looks at contracts and it analyzes provisions. So you could say, look at every provision where if there's a change of control of a company, does, is the contract permit that or not? And the, and the AI will do that, and it's great at it. The problem is that that's a job that lawyers used to do. I did that when, you know 30 yeah. years ago when I started. Right. E-discovery. So, e-discovery too. Yeah. Um, so our, you know we're affected by this. We have to train our, our you know new com- new lawyers better so yeah. that they can perform work at a higher level. So this is happening everywhere. If it's happening to us, it's happening everywhere. Um, but, and people are focusing on that aspect only, the fact that it's gonna eliminate um, positions, right? And and um, and functions, but it's up to us, you know, and in your industry yeah. too, to kind of take this and train people better so that they have more interesting things to do. So it's not just a negative, you know, it doesn't lead to a net loss of jobs that people just do more high level stuff. So to me, I always think it's on that front, the, the AI taking the jobs is it's really a tale of two cities again, where uh, I'll use this phrase, those who know how work for those who know why. And the how is getting uh, rapidly hit by AI automation. And it's not just low-end jobs, it's the jobs across the spectrum. It has to do with the structure of the job. The ability for you to pivot into that model and, and, and come out on top has to do with, what we say, two different dimensions. is your attitude and your aptitude towards the change. If you fight the change, you'll lose because the change is coming. But the second one is you can have less control over. You either have the aptitude to make the pivot or you don't. To move into the Y dimension of work uh, to ask ex- in your profession, asking existential questions around legal issues versus mechanical issues on e-discovery. Uh, does this contract say this word? Um, that's a different skill set. You know the 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 you know the old sweatshops that legal sweatshops where people just reviewing boxes and boxes of discovery to see if something is compliant with a subpoena. Uh, and that can now be done by software. Well. That lawyer who was doing that needs to up their game into more value-added things or they're going to be rolled over. So that's why I think it's a tale of two cities defined by those two discerning criteria of attitude and aptitude. Yeah, I think that's right. So, um, But it, it's going to happen in every industry. And, um, you know, it's, it's almost like an extension of, of outsourcing. If you, Again, looking at the legal industry, you know, we were hit by uh, outsourcing as well um, in the e-discovery area and in some of these due diligence related areas. I mean, the first trend was for this work to be done in India. Um, yeah. um, law firm, you know, outsourcing shops set up in India and other, you know, lower cost um, countries to, to do this kind of work. And now that people don't talk about outsourcing anymore, and, anymore. they talk about the AI solution, like, you know, that, yeah. that, that does the same thing. And for our industry, for every industry that we're knowledge or inf- information, you know, is the 
drives the industry, that's happening. Um, so, you know, the same way that, you know, outsourcing to jobs, you know, arguably from here, right, um, and the middle sector of companies, right, and move them to uh, to India and other jurisdictions, AI is doing that now too, yeah. right? Um, so in the same way that the companies adjusted here, that workers had to adjust here and train, be better trained to move up to that next level, that's just, that's this process is just going to be, have, continue. So let me ask one more question and we'll wrap up. Uh, we talked before when we were doing a tour of the facility, the, um, the changes in the legal. So, we, you know, you've been in the industry for 30 years and I've known you for 20. Uh, the nature of, I'm thinking more, I'm addressing now this to young people. So people coming out of law school today. People with less gray hair than you and I. Less gray hair. I have yeah. some gray hair. Yeah. I diet, I diet gray. Yeah. Um, people coming out of school today have a very different uh, experience jumping into a firm like Wilmer Hale and other firms like it um, than they had, say, 20, 30 years ago. Um, tell me how a little bit about that, about how Wilmer Hale is sort of addressing take into consideration the, the different social attitudes towards work for the millennials that are coming out of law school today? Yeah. Well, I, I think we are just, um, you know, feeling the effects of a change generally uh, in the workforce. Like if you're in Silicon Valley and you're starting a job, right, you're, you're working at your first tech company, how long are you going to stay there, right? Yeah. What's the average uh, the time? Months, at, at, not years. Yeah, yeah, right. It's a year or 18 months, right? right. And, you know, it's people don't look negatively in the fact that you move from company to company. In fact, it's a positive. They think, right. wow, you, you you know, you've been in so many places. You have so many different experiences. And also also for the individual, right, right for the student moving from place to place, it's great for them too, right? Because right. they're probably they're usually moving to a, high, to a better opportunity. We're feeling that the same way in law too, because it used to be that people came out and said, you know what, I'm going to work at that law firm and uh, for my career or or um, or a good chunk of my career. Most kids coming out now don't feel like that. They feel like similar to the someone you're, you're starting up in Silicon Valley, that they're going to do this for a few years, get some good experience, and move on. And so we're seeing kind of more of that. Like we had, had a great, um, one of the best lawyers, junior lawyers I've ever worked with. He left about six months or so ago to uh, work. He had an idea, started a company. Um, to use blockchain technology in a kind of new, innovative way and kind of the, apply the technology to kind of voting online. A really cool idea, something you really wanted to do. People didn't do that 10 years or so ago, but now there's so many opportunities for like great ideas. If you have a good idea, you good chance you can get it funded. Um, so we're seeing more and more of that, That's like great. people coming in and doing really kind of fun things and following their heart. So you think um, the change uh, that we see and you know the work-life balance and the opportunities for young people are better today than they were 20 years ago. I think there are more opportunities than there were 20 uh, yeah. years ago or so ago. Like smart, you know, kids coming out of school who've got multiple skills are willing to learn. I think the opportunities are Polymaths. more. Yeah, and um, and we've had to adjust too. Like um, actually, working in the technology area, we we were kind of used to you know 20 years ago yeah. working remotely, right? We'd take our yeah. laptops back then and and. Uh, our first versions of the Blackberries, which didn't work internationally, right. <laughs> uh, and uh, and we were kind of used to it. Now, but we were kind of outliers, right? Most people worked in the office um, and uh, and didn't work remotely, right? You went home and you ended your work. Now it's just the opposite. That uh, kind of almost the default is you work twenty four seven, but you can work anywhere. 
And so we've had to adjust that too, create, you know, flexible environments that people can work at home. They feel comfortable working at home. They can bring the technology. We've got phones that people can bring at home that can, that can, that can link up to our phone system. Um, you know, people can take hotspots with them so they can, you know, they're going away the weekend They they can work on weekends. Plus as a minus of that, you're the great news is you can still, you got a wedding, you got to go to for the weekend, you go. Uh, no reason to cancel. The minus is, of course, you know, we're all reachable 24 seven. Right. Well, Rob, thanks for spending time with us today, having Wilmer Hale host us here for these conversations we had this afternoon. Really appreciate it. And uh, look forward to working with you in the future. Yeah, great to have you. Thank you for having me. Great to to talk to you. All right. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to Pardon the Disruption. We'd like you to subscribe to our podcast if you like it. You can find us on most of the platforms where you get your podcasts from, whether that be iTunes or YouTube or whatever you're on. Uh, We also want some feedback. What shows do you want us to cover? What do you like? What do you not like so that we can do this? We're doing this for you. We're not doing this for anything else. So please subscribe and give us some feedback. Thank you very much.